Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Gamble. Here to announce that NDC Sydney is coming back to the Hilton Sydney in Australia. I got the chance to go to the show in 2017, and it was amazing. Typical NDC awesome. And NDC Sydney is two days of workshops and three days of conference running September 17th through the 21st. And if you sign up by December 31st, you get super early bird pricing at ndcsydney.com. The best price for the best show in Sydney. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, Billy Hollis is here. We're going to be talking about UX or... A UX anti-patterns, maybe. I don't know what, what Billy's <laughs> going to talk about. It's always, always good when Billy's here. UX or rather lack of UX. Lux. Yeah. Lack of UX. But before we do that, uh, first of all, how are you, my friend? It's been a while since we recorded a show. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good to actually record from the studio. You know, here I am in the midst of planning already for our run to NDC London because we've got lots of shows to do there as well. It's always great to get in front of folks. And I I specifically go after people we haven't spoken to before. So a uh, really interesting line, lineup at NDC London, and we're going to talk to some new faces. Fantastic. Uh, well, in the spirit of UX, I pulled out a blog post that has a lot to do with UX for Better Know Framework. So run the crazy music. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? Well, this is uh, from October 2017 uh, by Chris Diaz. And you know Chris, right? Yeah, VS Code guy. Yeah, Visual Studio Code. This is the Visual Studio Code blog. And this post is the icon journey. Oh, my. And I'm going to share the link with Billy so that, you know, he can chime in if he wants to. Um, so this is the icon journey. And the <laughs> it's basically... They asked for feedback for the icon for Visual Studio Code, and hilarity ensued. So, it's a. It, first of all, they started <laughs> with what? What's your favorite color? And what uh, is your favorite color? <laughs> <laughs> they got this set of icons that were really weird looking, and then they uh, some were rejected because they didn't contain any folds, like. Th- rotation and, and they oh it's just the <laughs> the, uh, the extent that they went to to get so much to all agree on an icon for wow. visual studio code crazy yeah i i just don't have this much energy for an icon <laughs> pumpkin spice what <laughs> at this point we pretty much ran out of colors in the family palette except for the now infamous orange <laughs> there was some concern about the similarity to Sublime Text color palette, but no one had issues when we tested it. <laughs> they tested the icon color. Yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. The, the challenge I have with trying to test an icon color is finding people who care. I, yeah. I mean, now, granted, what they came up with looks cool. It looks 3D. Yeah. And it's not real. Of course, it's just a 2D interpolation, but it does look pretty cool. But I just thought it was interesting to read the story of how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Billy, anything you want to say about it? Well, I, I'm looking over this blog post for the first time, and it's almost a canonical example of how Microsoft focuses on minutia instead of seeing the big picture 
and focusing it on UX that actually makes a difference to the typical <laughs> users of the product. Wow. So it's not that I'm glad that they're actually looking at things like this. I'm glad that they're beginning to understand some of the importance. But in the grand scheme of things, there are a lot of things about Visual Studio that are a lot more important than whether the icon is is clean and nice. I mean, yeah, you'd like that to be there, but I could give them a list of five other things I wish they were spending their time on. Mm, okay. <laughs> fair. Very but fair. But Billy, pumpkin spice. <laughs> Who doesn't like pumpkin spice? <laughs> All right. Anyway, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of Billy's last show, 1344, talking about building XAML apps from September of 2016. Just a ton of comments and lots of conversation there. I see Billy jumping in and folks going back and forth. I'm going to yeah. read a long one because I think it's worth it. This is from okay. Matt Robal. And he said, I'm slowly catching up on .NET Rocks episodes after a lengthy paternity leave and I'm almost caught up. Dude, you can listen to DNR while rocking <laughs> the baby. It's okay. <laughs> And the universe, being the funny place it is, has me listening to the Billy Hollis episode on the same day that I have a conference call with Billy. In fact, I'm not sure whether or not he was referencing our organization when he mentioned a company that deals with life and death needing to move out of VB slash access, etc. But that's precisely what's going on to be talked about later today. Yeah. I've actually commented on a few shows that it's been years of me saying, we're a shop that works on police and fire software that has been migrating a massive cobalt application to the modern world. Years. Hmm. It's been years because retooling a shop to go from the equivalent of an auto mechanic who's really good at keeping your 1972 Pinto running to a <laughs> Tesla Gigafactory is not the kind <laughs> of thing you can be done overnight. And frankly, after three years, I'm not convinced it can be done at all. Billy hits the nail on the head that it takes time to get your team that has been building apps without thought to modern tools moving on to those tools. It's yeah. taken me three years to get here to support processes, ALM processes, engineering practices to tolerable, although I won't call them acceptable, levels. Hmm. While I spend a lot of my time reading blog posts and building proofs of concept, my team doesn't. They aren't listening to Carl and Richard. Oh, they are wow. dependent on this organization, forcing them to move forward while they hope that they will be allowed to be able to stay in place. These are dark matter developers. <laughs> They're good yeah. people. They aren't even bad developers. They yeah. write code that's good enough to keep getting their paychecks. Yep. If you're someone like me trying to pull a team up and out of the old ways and into the light, there is hope. And you've been listening to it. .NET Rocks has been invaluable to me, even if I haven't convinced my staff to start listening three days a week. It's only two now, buddy, so you'll be fine. Yeah. The people who appear as guests are real. You can hire them. I don't know why, but it took me until a year into my tenure of managing this group to grasp that concept. We hired Yuval Lowy's company, iDesign, to help us design a new architecture. The nice. process made the fact that our ALM practices were going to be a massive problem very apparent. So we hired Brian Randall to come in and get us out of chaos and into order-ish. Wow. And as I've mentioned before, I'm in the process of trying to see if we can work with Billy and his team because everyone from Carl and Richard to Brian to Yuval to other people that aren't even connected to the shows says he's the person to get. Mm -hmm. I guess my point is, is that you're, if your organization is a dark matter cluster and you feel despair at all of the changes that are necessary and how much time it will take, it will take time, like double how much you think it will take, but you don't have to do it alone. In fact, don't try and do it alone. These mm. people you've been reading and listening to can help you. And if they can't, there's probably someone else in the space who can. Yeah. 
Well said. Awesome. Great story. Yeah. And uh, that was from a year ago. So I'm sure, you know, Matt's further down the path. And uh, I'll help him encourage his fellow developers to listen to .NET Rocks by sending him a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. They're not as dark matter as you think they are. <laughs> nope. Uh, and that brings us to Billy. Billy Hollis is a software designer and developer with a contrarian streak that often challenges conventional wisdom in the industry. He has a consulting practice in Nashville, Tennessee, and he and his team focus on user experience design, or UX, uh, universal apps for Windows 10, advanced user interface development, rules-based architectures, and healthcare systems. He teaches design classes for UX and technical classes on XAML and Windows 8 to Windows 10. Unlike many instructors, he can usually keep you awake for the entire class. <laughs> it's those guerrilla basketball movies, Billy. That's what does it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I really work on trying to expose people to things that take them out of their normal everyday world. I think developers tend to get so buried in minutia well, with the yeah. complexity of modern platforms that they it's really, really hard for them to step back and see a big picture. And I, I, that's that's been the theme, I think, of both my UX sessions as well as some of my technical sessions in XAML is to encourage developers to step back and, and look at things in a more big picture way. And that came about because I ran into a couple of instances where we were looking at prospective uh, projects that we would do for people in which I simply could not get the people we were talking to to step back and understand the importance of the big picture. They were so focused on minutia that I couldn't get them off that button. And I think that's a fairly widespread problem in the industry now. Wow. You know, is it more like uh, going back to your old video that we did at TechEd, one of those times ago, being addicted to code? Like they people just like to write code? Well, that's certainly a part of it. Yeah, they, yeah. they, they have that. Uh, and I, I, there's something that I did not put in that video that I use as kind of my modern test for the code addiction, but it, it plays up on the minutia part pretty well. Uh, I talk about the fact that if I'm in front of these, these classes and trying to, trying to keep them awake and understand the, the priorities, that if you want to know whether or not you're a code addict, the simplest test is to think about a meeting that you've been in where there was some feature that needed to be done. And yeah. it, the meeting was going to last 60 or 90 minutes or whatever. But after about five minutes, you're not listening to the person trying to describe it to you anymore because you're coding the solution in your head. Now, that is, to me, as good a diagnostic. And when I do that in front of large audiences, two-thirds of them will admit that they've done that mm -hmm. on occasion. Well, I mean, that indicates some pretty serious things. And we joke about it. We joke about it being code addiction. But understand one of the underlying things that means. That means that developers who have that problem need to work on their listening skills. Listening yeah. skills are one of the most important things to look at big picture thinking. And anytime you're going to operate in the UX space, for example, as well as just to do functionality, you need to work on your listening and be able to actually actively engage in listening to the person for some uh, period of time. And the fact that they can't do it with their, their mind drifting into doing code is an indication of a skill that needs to be worked on. I'm sorry. Did you say something, Billy? 
I'm sorry. Did you say something? I was I was writing some code here. I didn't know. I didn't you hear said, what you yeah, just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, that's that's a one example of people focusing on the minutia. But we've also seen a couple of cases where they were so involved with process minutia that they didn't want to yeah. step back and think about doing things in the UX space. Right. It, I, it's variations of well, I don't see how this UX design thing fits into our our particular flavor of agile methodologies. Well, I'm sorry. Agile is fine for man- managing the code-centric, detail-centric, minutia-centric parts of development. It's actually one of the better ways to do that. I don't think it's the only way, but I think it's one of the better ways. But it really, Agile is not particularly good at fostering big-picture thinking. It it, it yeah. was never constructed for that. Sure. No, it's totally fair. Can't argue with pay attention and 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 try to try to put things in context. I've been in those meetings where. You know, as soon as I figured that uh, I could come up with an architecture in my head, you know, before I left the meeting, right? And instead of listening all the way through and and trying to trying to get the big picture, I, I've definitely been guilty of that because that you know I, I'm like, oh, I see what I got to do. Cool, we're we're done here, you know. And then you stop listening. I, I think in many cases the solution to that is a lot simpler than a lot of developers realize. That if you're, if you're going to listen to users, you need a, a bit of a context in which to listen. So to pull you into the big picture, there are a handful of questions that you can ask that typically foster the kind of information that will help you see things on the big picture. For example, if you ask a user, what is the one thing? If you could change or add one thing for this system that would make your life easier on a day to day basis, what would that one thing be? Right. Now, you do that with a representative sample of users, you're going to start to see patterns and you're going to start to see a big picture. When when people step up to do a, a view, they're going to design a view for a user, they ought to understand what are the two or three most important actions that the user takes at that point. What are the five or six most important pieces of information that the user needs at that point to promote the next thing in their workflow, the next phase of their workflow. And I I tell people that, you know, you ought to know these things before you start designing a screen. And that's so obvious. And yet I get people look at me like, I just never thought of that before because (laughs) developers are focused on the minutia. So they ask the question of what are all the things that need to go on the screen? They don't tend to ask the question of what are the most important things that are yes. going on this screen. And it really isn't that hard to, to get in the habit of listening if you ask some of these basic questions that start users giving you that kind of context right. about their jobs. Yeah. Did the uh, message that uh, Richard read, did that guy ever actually get in touch with you and hire you? We, we had some extensive discussions with them, and I think he was pretty much convinced uh, of what we needed to do. There was a little bit of a difference between us and some of the other people that he was looking at using because they were talking about like a week or two of coming in and, 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 and really casting a complete understanding of what they needed to do at a, at a kind of a higher level, but not a lot of implementation of details, just sort of lay out the plan. But what they wanted us to do was to actually design the user experience and construct some of the key technology pieces of it in XAML. And that was just a little bit longer, 
a little bit, actually. It's a fair amount longer, several weeks worth of work. And oh, cool. he, he had trouble getting the other people involved to understand the importance of that. Yeah, so, yeah. so that, that I think he obvious. wanted to do it, but the other uh, people outside software development don't necessarily understand. I mean, if developers don't understand anything about user experience, why would we expect other decision makers to understand? <laughs> and hold that thought, Billy, while we just take a few minutes to hear this very important message. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform .NET IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. From C-Sharp, VB.NET, F-Sharp, and XAML, to ASP.NET Razor Syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features, powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.com. .netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. All right, we're back. It's .NET Rocks, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, and Billy Hollis, and we're talking UX. And uh, Billy was just talking about a story about a client that uh, wrote us. So, Billy, what's making you mad these days? Oh, he, that's a question you know that's going to really get me set off about some things. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm upset about I'm upset about instability and bugs. I'm I'm seeing this all the way from websites to apps in Windows 10 to Edge itself. I I, I my perception is that the average quality of the stuff that I use is lower today than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, wow. I, I can't. And argue. I don't understand why because. I mean, uh, do you guys see that? Do, do, do you have that perception, or is it just that the stuff I use is is some kind of aberration? Well, for me, it, it's the little applications that tend to be the biggest problem. The big ones, you know, like from the Adobe's and all of those big Windows apps, anyway, tend to be pretty good uh, and pretty stable. And I think they are more stable now. Uh, with this version of Windows than they've ever been. I mean, I, the, the the stuff that we've been using for years has bugs, but we know where they are. We know how to contain them. But, uh, I, man, I haven't found any problems with any of these big applications. But little ones, yes. I was just using Twitter yesterday. I was, I'm looking at the possibility of doing a UX class here in Nashville and ask people to message me if they wanted to, uh, to be on the list when, when the class gets organized. And so I got several messages. Twitter has a thing now where they can message you even if they don't follow you, but it has bugs. If you try to go to look at those messages, the navigation scheme is, is messed up and you have to go back two or three times to, mm. for, before you, uh, it understands that what messages you want to look at. And it's just, and I tried it in different browsers and it doesn't seem to matter. It's just some bugs in, in Twitter. Well, Twitter is a giant platform used by hundreds of millions of people and, and, and yet it still has those kinds of issues. Well, if you're talking web apps, yes, I have a list a mile long. I was thinking of Windows apps in particular, but, uh, which seemed to be pretty stable to me. But, but web apps, yeah, um, there's no end to the problems I have with them. 
I guess the, the main one is that, that 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 has caused me some grief recently has been Edge. I can show you some some bugs in Edge right now. And some of the minor apps that I use, I may use different apps than you, but some of the the minor apps that I use, I, I've, I've discovered uh, glitches in Groove, for example, which I've tried to switch over as my music player. Um, and, and of course, some of the, some of the device drivers still, still have some interesting issues. I don't know. I don't, I don't see, and it's hard for me to draw the distinction in my mind when I get frustrated between a bug and just a bad user experience. Yeah. Right. And so I've never, you know, I'm a social media cynic for the most part. I've used Twitter mm. for years, but I really haven't used anything else. I don't have a Facebook page, but I've been encouraged by some folks to 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 get involved with LinkedIn to get a LinkedIn page up. So I I spent some time doing that. And the navigation in LinkedIn is just awful. It, mm-hmm. it you go someplace and the back button does not take you back to where you were. Now, is that a bug or is that bad user experience? I don't necessarily know how to classify it, but I know right. I don't like it. I know that I don't like using this this site. Is there a prescribed uh alternative to the back button in other words do they have navigation everywhere that works well they have menus they have various places where you can click to go to places but i haven't seen any um consistency it's it's as if it was just kind of it grew and accreted over the years instead of being designed as a good user experience and again, yeah. that's that's a, uh, a, a site, and then there, the Windows 10 app is nothing more than a wrapper around the HTML site. So you you, it, you don't really have a separate Windows 10 app there. But that's used by millions yeah. of people. And when I put on Twitter, am I missing something here? Is because I'm very sensitive to the possibility that I'm just not a typical user, and that something is right. is optimized yeah. to a, to a class of people, a category of people, a group of people that I don't happen to be a member of. So I I don't necessarily just out of the blue go, this is just horrible user experience. I want to put it in context yeah. and go, is this good user experience for the people at whom it's aimed? And I put up a a question on Twitter about this, and the consensus from the half dozen or so messages I got back was, no, it's just bad. It's just awful. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Nobody likes it. Just and, and this is something used by millions of people, and I don't understand why it isn't better. Um, because I can name to you the various design principles that they're violating in trying to, uh, to, to get through this app. At the same way that when Windows 8 came out, we, I, I mean, I did this in private, but people like Jakob Nielsen, uh, of Nielsen Norman did it in public and said, you're just violating fundamental principles about how people use software and they're not going to like it. Uh, and, and I, yep. I'm, I'm, I keep thinking that because Apple sort of showed us the way 10 years or so ago that the industry will evolve toward understanding both the importance of doing it and have some semblance of understanding about how to get a good user experience out there. But in fact, when I go up and actually use particularly websites, but applications to a certain extent as well, um, then I, well, uh, Skype is probably one of my best examples in the Windows space oh, of just yeah. a bad My user eyes. experience. And I don't understand why it's bad. I don't understand why that they've made it worse. And it recently got worse. Yeah, it's gotten worse. Yeah, yeah. I definitely feel like Skype is going backwards. But I also wonder how much software is because it's so easy to update now because of the cloud and and bandwidth and so forth that you're just throwing stuff out there you know isn't done because you know you can fix it later. Richard, I think I think that's one of the key aspects of it. I, I was thinking about bringing that up because. It, there is kind of a, a 
it fosters a certain never time to do it right, but always time to do it over mentality among software development teams. Yeah. Yes. And I don't think that's healthy. That you can get away with because the cost of update is trivial. But you're still basically subjecting your entire user base to b- becoming voluntarily or not a beta population <laughs> with every new thing you put out there. Yep. Well, and clearly not voluntarily, right? You don't get a choice. You want the software? Welcome to the beta. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think what we're not accounting for, because we've reduced the cost of updates so much, we're just not accounting for the uh, cost of wasted time, of lack of productivity, of how many people get turned off by that software. I think most software development teams don't factor that cost into their cost benefit of the constant stream of new features and the bugs that come from them. Yeah, I agree. Billy, when you come across an app, let's say it's a web app and you're using it and there's just some absolutely dumb things going on there. Do you actually give them feedback and and has it ever worked? Have you ever seen anyone take your suggestions seriously? I do occasionally. The hit rate of people actually paying attention to me is maybe about one third. There was one famous thing where I discovered a bug in American Airlines website and I put that on Twitter where they were they they had this package of miles they were uh. offering you and it was zero miles for $137 or something. And it nice. was just, it was a bug. And and when I put that up on Twitter in a humorous way, I was contacted by American Airlines. They, they took my record locator and they fixed that bug. It was, it was gone pretty soon. But some of the other stuff that they, it took them a year and a half to fix the problem where if you don't fill out credit card information, the button in the normal continue location is throw everything away and start over. Oh, nice. Okay, now that's just that's just bad UX, and it was costing them money all the time, and that was in place for about eighteen months. And if anybody wonders about the the financial effect of things like that, there's a great mm. article out there called the three hundred million dollar button. Wow! Where working with a major e-commerce site, a design firm did did nothing but shift the location of a button, and revenues went up a million dollars a day. Oh, my. Okay, so so that's the kind of thing that can happen. So, look, American Airlines can't exactly afford to throw money down the drain, all right? But every day, people were going there, accidentally hitting that button before they put in the credit card info and getting frustrated and giving up and going over and booking on Delta or United or something. You know, I think your tactic of calling it out on Twitter is particularly good because PR departments see that and then they're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. We have to fix this. And, right. You know. Whereas if you just send an email, eh, you know, it goes in the electronic trash. Well, that's the way I felt is that make it public. And and yeah, the PR people will often respond. Uh, there's one particular feature, for example, that uh, is a, is actually a part of Skype. It's Skype. It was Skype for business. It was Link or whatever it was called before that Yeah. Uh, to do online meetings with a lot of people. It has a chat window. Let's suppose you have 50 people on there. And you're getting a chat, every, a, a new entry in the chat window every five or 10 seconds. Yeah. And now you come in and you want to go back and read something that somebody said three screens up. Mm. 
You see, I hear giggling over there. So you- I do because I've experienced this. You you scroll up, and then as soon as somebody types something new, boom, you're right back to the latest right. one. That's that's just yeah. awful, awful, awful user it's experience. Terrible. It's rage inducing. So I put it on Twitter that that that, that was uh, that I was reminded of how enraged I was, and then some, somebody from the team said, "Oh well, we don't want that. What 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 what's the problem?" And I described the problem. Well, that was 18 months ago, and they haven't done anything about it. They're not going to do anything about it. That's a classic problem of thinking one interface is going to solve two problems and the well or or provide two different functions. And one function is going back in history and searching and the other is getting the the current feed. And you yeah, the your classic list box that always brings the current uh piece of text in focus doesn't do that. You need two different interfaces. You need two windows. You need a history, or at the very least, just stop bringing me back to the current, you know, the last text when the scroll bar is up. Give me, I mean, at a brute force thing, you could give me a checkbox that turns off the automatic position to the bottom. Easy. I mean, that's not the ideal design by any means. I could come up no. with better designs than that, but that but would at least solve the fix. problem. Yeah, it would solve the problem, yeah. So I, th- these are examples of things where I see that that even though we're 10 years into this idea of modern apps and good user experience, the the number of, of companies that's actively embracing this and, and really giving it the attention it deserves is still is still way, way too small. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to press the back button on the intelligence of this discussion and revisit <laughs> the dumb page. <laughs> been to that page <laughs> yeah i think we're going there right now actually <laughs> we're there oh we are there okay it's actually time to give away a d experience subscription from dev express to one lucky member of the dotnet rocks fan club become a ui superhero with dev express ui controls and libraries and deliver elegant dotnet solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux and all that. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. But we want you to learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal right now at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Vulcan Uzen. Congratulations, Vulcan. Yes. Golf clap for you, sir. Just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Vulcan won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress. A big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, and we just did this, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And of course, Billy, now it's that time where you tell us what it is you would buy with $5,000. Go. Oh, $5,000 now? That's a good question. Um, I've, I've, I'm pretty set on 
most of my modern technology at, at, because I have some state-of-the-art gear here. I would probably go into more of the VR space at this point. If I, The first thing I'd buy is go get some of those handheld things that allow you to, to paint in virtual reality and such. Right. I, that'd probably be the first purchase that I would make if I was just given a bunch of, of money. Oh, absolutely. Have you had any customers ask for this kind of stuff yet? We've talked to customers about some of the AR and VR stuff. AR is much more interesting to them than VR for the most part. I mean, yeah. you can imagine we have a major customer that has factories and that they make, they make food. And you can certainly imagine a, a plant supervisor walking through and having things suspended over the, the, the assembly lines that give them all the information they need about what's going on. Yeah. Even things like, what's the name of the people operating this right now? Are we are we on track right. to produce today's stuff? Are we? Do we have any problems or whatever? You can certainly imagine that ability for those virtual screens to be seen and for 3D exploded views of various pieces of equipment so right. to do diagnosis and such. So everybody agrees that that's a good idea and, and nobody wants to be the first ones to develop it in the medium-sized company space that I'm in because that development is pretty expensive and they'd like for other people to go make the mistakes first, I think, so that they yeah, don't spend right, as much right. money on them. But yeah, there's a lot of interest. There's just not very many people pulling the trigger. Right. Yeah, and that that's sort of where we are today with software too. I mean, it, as the the guy who wrote to us and uh, hired you ended up hiring you, his main complaint was that you know, the the answers are right in front of our face, but nobody seems interested in them. That's that that, that that's one of the things that has that has mystified me as I've I've gone out and and done a lot of talking to various potential clients and. Certainly, there's a big enough group that I haven't, we haven't had any trouble staying busy. In fact, I think we're, we're pretty much booked for a pretty good sized chunk of next year starting on, on January 1st. But I, I do continuously run into people who, who really don't see the big picture of, of how we could apply this technology to really make a much, much bigger difference, including the people at Microsoft. I mean, when they're working on icons and such, I see so many opportunities to promote faster software development. I have this vision in my head for, particularly for UWP, but you could do it for WPF as well, of the kind of toolkit that would allow somebody to go out there and scan their databases and get some screens in place and get some navigation stuff in a couple of weeks and have something that did some basic software and then begin adding to that uh, skeleton to, to put in some more, uh, some, some business logic and other things that was more focused on that particular business. But the, 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 the initial leap to make things happen in that world is so high that a lot of people just don't make it or what they end up with after they've made the leap, they've broken their leg during the leap or whatever. They've got a piece of, of, of technology that's supposed to be the foundation for what they do. And it just isn't very good. And yeah. I, I've got this vision in my head for what that looks like. And the problem is I need a team in several months to do it. And I can't afford just to do it for free as part of the community. And I I communicate this vision to Microsoft. And it's clear that the people I'm talking to don't see that vision. Right. Uh, And again, I think it goes back to a lot of the, the, the fact that they're, they're focused on minutia. And, and well, let's be, let's be honest. Look, you, you know, we have this, 
interesting sort of relationship with Microsoft because they do so many interesting and great things. And they, they've created this wonderful e- ecosystem. And yet, you tell me, we were talking about listening problems earlier. Do you think a lot of Microsoft people have listening problems? <laughs> well, I sure. I do. I'm sure they do. Yeah. Um, you know, the information tends to come through filters. Yeah. And in addition to that, they have what I would call on average, a pretty short attention span, don't you think? I mean, I'm sorry, a, what? A, a, a pretty short. At- <laughs> Let me say that again. <laughs> See, you you should be working for Microsoft there, Carl, because you exhibit. The, I mean, I'm not going to claim that they all just have attention deficit disorder, but the combination of the typical personality type plus the intense pressure under which they work. Yeah causes that outward appearance that they just don't take very long to listen to people. And and that means that they get a fairly superficial understanding of what people are trying to tell them. And they're also, in many cases, talking to unrepresentative users. They're talking to, oh, enterprise architects and, and influencers and people like that. Right. The squeaky wheels. Right. Yeah. And those people want to go, well, look, let me tell you about this feature you need to add to the platform. No, no, you need to be thinking about the people who can't adopt your platform because it's already it's already got too many features. Right. It's already got things they don't understand. And they don't talk to those people as much as they should. And when you start getting into something that kind of tries to paint the big picture, I, look, I do this with them and I can see their eyes glaze over. Uh, they, and, and of course, I, well, let's let's challenge you guys when they reach the point where they're ready to end the conversation and they think they've gotten all the listening done that they need to, what is the phrase they use? That's good feedback. There you go. <laughs> That's great okay. feedback. See, I didn't have to tell you that. No. People, people, we, we've all been indoctrinated in this system for quite some time, so we're the We owner. all know what that means. It yeah. means, I've. it means, look, I've listened to you and I've gotten some stuff, but I just, I don't think I'm getting any more out of it and I don't have time and I've got something else to do. I just wonder if Microsoft is no different from any other organization. Thinking back to Matt's comment, it's like there's a couple at any given team, there's going to be one or two people that are super engaged and, and, you know, out in the field and in the industry. And the rest are just trying to get their jobs done. Yeah. Well, that's probably true. And as I said, I think it is an industry wide thing that people in this industry just don't, don't listen as well as they should. But look, listening is a skill. It's a skill that can be developed if you understand that it's important. There's any number of resources out there to explain to you how to actively listen. Sure. And, and I don't see the, the recognition that it's an issue, that it's a problem. They think they're good listeners, but in fact, they're not. Well, the difference is that an individual can be a good listener, but when you have institutionalized knowledge, that shared knowledge, and somebody, something comes along, not somebody, but some, something, some research, some facts, some new information comes along, you know, you got to figure out where in the stack it goes, right? Is it close to the metal, which changes everything? Or is it some sort of superficial branch up, uh, up higher, uh, in a higher level? And when it's institutionalized, somebody's got to take the risk to say, hey, I'm going to pull out this piece of the Jenga tower and replace it with this piece. And, uh, you know, w- what could happen, right? You, well, you could lose your job. You could, uh, you know, lose some resources. You could be a hero. You could save some money. You could cost some money, right? So, so I think institutionalized knowledge is hard to change. And 
therein lies the the issue. It's not just a Microsoft problem. It's well, a, I, that's true. It's a human problem, and it pushes people toward minutia changes are, that are just just trimming around the edges instead right. of really rethinking problems. And and I do get that. And one of the things I teach in my UX classes is that there are risks both ways. Windows 8 shows you the risk of taking a giant leap and getting it wrong. But yeah. there's also risk involved in investing your resources in minutia that doesn't make that's not game changing. That doesn't make any, any real difference. And I've seen clients do that. I went into one client that had gone through three rounds of redevelopment and mm. the users had rejected them all because most of what they were doing was trimming around the edges. And they see users have a status quo bias. They, they, they understand what they've used right now. And they, that in order to convince them to ch- to change to accept changes those changes have to be obviously and compelling and, and obviously good and help them in their work and and such if if they don't see that there's real right. change if if you're just twiddle, twiddling around the edges then the users tend to reject it so now you fail that way so there's both ways to fail and and the finding the balance there uh again it unless you have a pretty big picture view of the situation, then finding that balance is just about impossible. So there is that apocryphal story that although apparently Ford never actually said this, that if I asked the user what they want, or if I asked the customer what they want, they would have said faster horses. Right. Right. And so I can't go to users and and do game changing innovation um, by asking the users what they what features they want. Uh, that that's just not oh. a path that does it. And I guess it's also useful to to put a distinction in place between software that that is just okay if it's ground out and if it's just kind of brute force approaches to particular problems versus yeah. situations where innovation has a really high payoff. Um, if, if I'm a software company and I come up with a new way of doing payments, and this is actually taken from a real project we did back in the fall, if I, I'll kind of describe the situation and, and you can, you can kind of see the, the, the distinction there. These particular folks are in the business of supplying a package to collect property taxes. Now, that's actually, as, as with everything, it's more complex when you start investigating it than you realize. Yeah. So we went out, we observed users, and we kind of got a big picture of it. They had four different screens for accepting tax payments. Why four screens? Now, wait a minute. Did these four screens do the same thing, or were they four steps in a process? No, they had. They did. They were for different scenarios. Okay. Now they they certainly had some overlap, but you can imagine that somebody who's doing going through a stack of mail taking checks mm, is fundamentally not doing exactly the same thing as somebody who's standing at a window with talking to people directly and taking payments. Yeah. Plus maybe you've got somebody who comes in and needs to pay for, they own 20 properties and they need to write you one check for all 20 properties. Okay. That's a different sort of thing. So, so they basically had four different screens to, to, to uh, approach those different variations on the same problem Part of okay. after observing the users and going back and doing some design, we came up with one approach that accomplishes all of them. They now have one payment screen and, and it's, it's so approachable that you can walk up to it and figure out how to use it with no training in just a few seconds. 
And yet it awesome. still handles all those different scenarios. Now that's innovation. So if, if yeah. you're in the package business and you can show somebody, look, we're going to lower your training costs and we're going to lower your error costs and, and, and your user is going to be less frustrated. Now that's a reason to buy that package that that other package over there doesn't have. So there are places where innovation matters. And then there are big corporate situations where people just sit at a desk and do repetitive things that it doesn't matter as much. So when I talk about the fact that people don't really understand UX the way they should, I'm mostly in that innovation space. I mean, I'm not opposed to writing better software for people who are just grinding stuff out. Uh, and in mm. fact, something repetitive, if you can speed it up, has a pretty big impact on on bottom line cost because it, it promotes productivity. But in general, the big payoff for UX design is when you want to do some innovation that will give your organization a competitive advantage because of these designs. Indeed. So, uh, Billy, do you offer an icon design course? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think people need to understand the difference between visual design and interaction design. We've got someone who's really good at visual design and can do the nice icons and shapes. And actually, that is one of the nice things about XAML is it's relatively easy to do that. But yeah. no, we don't. I mean, I'm not going to tell people how to design icons. <laughs> what I tell them is go out and get and you're probably familiar with this product, Metro Studio from Syncfusion, because they've mm -hmm. got a whole, they've got thousands of shapes in XAML and SVG that you can just grab and just scroll around and browse and you'll find one that will be a, a good enough sort of icon for, for typical users to use. So now I'm yeah. not going to worry about uh, icon design too much because I think there are other things that have a bigger payoff. Well, and, you know, I brought that up just to be kind of silly, but, uh, you know, talking about the minutia of, let's say, Visual Studio, I mean, Visual Studio code is one thing, but, you know, if we're talking about Visual Studio, how is that app hitting you these days? Well, design that's not, not particularly well. I mean, I'm, I'm getting more frustrated in some respects. I, certainly, they add things that are nicer, especially for XAML editing. Things have gotten better over the last couple of versions, mm -hmm. and I don't... I, the property windows are better and they do more things. And I don't, I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to give the impression that there's no improvement, but I also see a disturbing trend that, that visual indicators are a valuable part of UX design, tipping people off. So this started several versions ago in Visual Studio with the little colored bars that indicated kind of where you'd made changes and whether those changes were in the compile with some color coding. You guys know what I'm talking about there, right? Oh, right. sure. Well, Every version, it's like they go, well, if that's, you know, if that was a good idea to have a few indicators, it must be a great idea to put just tons of them. And that's, yeah. that's not good. I mean, the whole, the value of the indicators was that it was easy to understand them and see them. And now I feel like this, the, the code editing window is just covered up with stuff. And it's so, it's so, um, dense in terms of, of information that I don't, I don't take the time now to see what that those indicators are trying to tell me anymore. So there's balance yeah. points there. I, I see that's 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 not so good. Uh, the the entire XAML editing experience has the problem of uh, of of they tried to spoof a Windows Forms experience and they're still trying to do that. And I think they need to go back and and rethink that. I'm working on a book right now on on XAML for uh, for UWP and one of the techniques that I'm using to explain sort of how things work is to use perspective transforms to, to sort of show layers in 3D. 
Because in the XAML world, that's kind of what's going on is you're compositing layers on top of one another. So right. imagine that you've got the ability to take these layers that are lay on top of one another and explode them out so that you see what each layer is doing. Well, there's nothing to stop them from writing a designer that does that. I mean, I wrote some stuff for my diagrams in a few minutes it did that. And yet I don't see that kind of thinking. In fact, I think one of the areas in which Visual Studio, as well as some other products, should be able to benefit as we go forward in, in the technological space is to use three dimension, the third dimension better. We really couldn't do that with some of our earlier UI stacks, but now we've got the capability to, 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 to do things in 3D. And I think the visualization of things, look, that's the way our brains work. That's, that's the world in which right. we live. And so I think visuals, I think it's time for Visual Studio to go back and, and look at big chunks of what they do and just rethink them from the ground up. And the problem is because of the status quo bias, if they did that, people would scream. Sure. Yeah. Well, remember the outrage of the uppercase menu? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So my advice to them is if you're going to, to rethink things from the ground up, that you have to be bold about it. You have to come up with something that's so obviously a better replacement than the thing that you're either taking away or pushing to the background, that it's so much better that they get past this status quo bias, this attachment to what right. they had. Now, that's hard. It's possible. And when you do it, that's when you, you start having game changing because Visual Studio is built on UX designs that go all the way back to 1991. We're, we're past right. time to rethink the entire metaphor of how we are, are interacting with code because you think about what software development is now and all the different pieces that have to come together to make things work. And you think about that solution explorer over there. How many of those files in a typical solution explorer do you actually know what they're, they're there for? Or, or do you mm, ever actually go yeah. look at them? See, we're just, yeah. we're in a different world from a software perspective, but we're still using metaphors based on VB1 from 1991. And I think it's, I think it's yeah. past time for us to rethink what those metaphors ought to look like. Billy, where are you speaking next? We want to come see you. Oh, <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I think um, uh, VS Live in Las Vegas is coming up, and I'm going to do a user experience workshop there. But okay. I'm, I'm trying to f uh, finish up the details for people to come to Nashville if they'd like to and do two days of, uh, of UX design training. I think this would be a good entry point for a lot of developers, and I'm hoping to get a pretty good sized class for that. I already have five or six people who have indicated that they're 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 prepared to sign up as soon as I I make that work. So that's the very next Great. thing. But then I'll be in mid in uh, early to mid March. I'll be in uh, um, at VS Live, and then I think we have the the intersection show coming up in Orlando. That's April, I think, Richard. Yep. I think. No, Mar also March. Oh, that's March, March as well. Okay, it's late March. Okay. So yeah. um, I think I'll probably be there. So those are the next two big shows, uh, Las Vegas and Orlando, that I'll be at. And I'm really happy to be doing the workshop down at uh, in Las Vegas because I haven't done my UX workshop in a few years. Here's a problem with that. And, and I, I, I mean, I'd be interested in what people have to say about it in terms of feedback. Because UX design, in terms of its basic principles, doesn't change that much. So I did UX design workshops for about two and a half, three years. And then you get to a point where it's the same content. I mean, you make variations on it, but it's really the same stuff. Unlike technology mm -hmm. workshops where you've two years and now you've got all new stuff that you need to talk about. 
And UX designer doesn't right. like that. So I took a hiatus and now I'm coming back and doing it. I'm not really sure how to approach the fact that if you go to a conference, you want leading edge stuff. On the other hand, UX design principles don't change that much. And there are always people who have never even looked at them. So you guys have any, any, right. anything, any comments about that you want to make? Or if people want to comment on, on. Yeah, I'm sure. very tormented about that whole leading edge stuff thing, just because I don't think new is good for news sake. Right. I'm, I, I'm a big believer in what works, what the you know where things actually are. Uh, often people aren't on the fir- on the latest version of things because they don't. It's not worth the disruption. I like having guys like you coming in saying, "Okay, here's the path from you know previous version or two previous versions to the next one. This is what changes. This is what the problems are." I think those sessions are way more valuable than just check out the shiny. Right. And, you know, there's also no end to the examples that you can give from the real world that, you know, and those things change and those things are new. But of course, the principles that they violate aren't. So, um, you know, bringing it home with, hey, here's an app that we probably all use and here's why it's infuriating. And and here is a here is a design we made for these this particular customer. And here's why it works well in their particular case. Here are the design principles that it works well. And I have been doing some sessions on that. Um, So. And, and then, uh, I, I guess the other area that if you're going to do good UX design, you have kind of have to know what's possible. And certainly in the native modern app world, we're, we see people are not really taking advantage of the platform as much. I just did, for example, uh, something at, for VS Live Orlando that everybody really liked as an example. Do you guys know what a jump list is? Yeah. Uh, well, tell oh, us yeah. anyway. For those of you who are not aware, which it surprised me in this session to find out that they weren't, if you go to the Windows Start button, in Windows 10, and and you press the you click a letter in the app list, then you get a, a, a grid of all the letters, and you can click the letter you want to jump to. And the same thing works in Groove if you want to go to an album or to an artist. Um, and it, it, that is a very good metaphor, a very good interaction pattern for certain kinds of lists where alphabetizing is is easy, and you don't have Oh, you have maybe a couple, three hundred, but you don't have thousands of, of, of items in the list. Yeah. So I wrote a WPF control to do that. So nice. now if, for your Windows 7 apps, you can implement a jump list using this control if you'd like to. And it illustrates the compositional principles. Because if you think about a jump list, the jump list has got the grouped list box grouped to the individual letters, but it also has to have the thing that appears to let you click the letter. Well, right. That's another list box inside the first list box. It's a list box with a wrap panel and it's got letters that you can, you can click. And so when I wrap that all up in the control, it's a, that's the, that's illustrating the composition. Most people don't think of putting list boxes inside list boxes. Sure. But I mean, there are interaction patterns for which that's exactly what you need. So opening people's minds to what the technology will do is also a big part of getting better user experience. And I find that the sessions people respond to the most are those that say, look, you already know that the technology will do this. But have you ever thought about what that means in terms of how we can how we can do better designs? So I'm I'm trying to focus more of my sessions on that rather than the details of the APIs and XAML and things like that. Yeah. Well, it sounds great, Billy, and it's always fun talking to you. Thanks for hanging out with us today. I enjoy it, guys. I always enjoy it. It's been too long. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a